You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. Thanks for joining me here today. This week we started a new Bible study on 1 Samuel here in Brandon, Mississippi. In our meeting, we discussed the purpose behind the format of the study and gave a basic introduction to the book of 1 Samuel. The teaching corresponds with the information on pages 5 to 9 of the Learner Workbook, available for download at thevillagechurch.net. If you have never done a study like this before, um, it's going to be a little bit different than your typical ladies' Bible study um, that a lot of us are maybe familiar with, because this is one where we are really going to dig deep into the Word of God Not that all ladies' Bible studies don't, but that the purpose of the study is not just to learn about 1 Samuel, but to teach you how to study the Bible on your own, to make you a student of the Word, and to give you tools and methods to use with any book of the Bible when you sit down to read, to be able to ask questions, to kind of wrestle with the text, and be able to draw conclusions and draw closer to God because of that. Um... I grew up in the church, like a lot of you, but my own personal story was that by the time I got to college, I mean, I had some great teachers growing up. I knew a lot about the Bible. I knew all my Bible drill verses. I could name you the key passages. I knew all the stories, the Davids and Goliaths, which we'll get to in in 1 Samuel. You know, Noah and the Ark, I, I knew all of those things, but no one had ever woven together, I think, the just overall picture of the Bible for me until I was in college at Mississippi State, sitting in an Old Testament class, which I just decided to take as an elective because my roommate had taken it, and she said that it was a good class, and the professor was interesting, and I was like, well, sure, I'll take that. But it was there in that lecture hall at Mississippi State where I first heard anything about the patriarchs or the covenant or, you know, the history of Israel and God's work of redemption throughout the whole Bible and how it all played together. And something um, just came alive in me. And I wondered why the Bible hadn't been taught to me like this in the church. Why did I have to be sitting at the secular university in this college credit class for somebody to say this? Now, it's not that way in all churches, and I'm not downing, you know, the the background that I have because I am so thankful for it, but I think it's something that we fall short of sometimes is teaching our people how to read the Bible and how to study it and how to put those pieces together. Because the truth is that for most of us, when we come to church on Sundays or Wednesday nights or whenever it is, you know, the church, your, your church meets or you get together, you sit under teaching of a passage that you have not read before you got there. And so you hear a 20 to 30 minute, maybe 45 minute sermon on a passage that you have not spent any time studying, you haven't considered it deeply, you haven't thought about it. And and most of us, to be honest, don't think about it again when we leave the church. And so a lot of our intake of teaching is shallow in the sense that we haven't spent any time diving into it on our own. And so that's what this study is about, is kind of correcting that 
because by the time you get here each week, you will have spent a significant amount of time in the Word. Got something to say about that, Gina? <laughs> no, nothing. Um, if you flip through the workbook, this one is really long because it's 11 weeks. Um, I'm, we're planning to meet for six weeks this semester and then pick up again in the spring. Now, if we get like toward the end of it and we're feeling froggy and y'all want to keep going, I'm fine with that. You know, <laughs> like I'm totally fine with keeping on. But I also know that, you know, that that's getting a little closer to the holidays and, and things get kind of crazy. And so it just depends. So we'll see about that. But I don't think it's actually any longer in length than the ones that we've done in the past. I think you have more room to write and there's more room to respond, more, more space. So 1 Samuel is a long book. We're going to be like covering in some leaps and bounds. Next week we're talking about chapters 1 through 3. So there's kind of a lot that happens in those first three chapters. We're going to be moving fast. But the whole purpose is... Um, for you to become comfortable with the word and to grow not just in your knowledge of what God is saying to us here in 1 Samuel, but to grow as a student of the word so that anytime you sit down with it, you're able to approach it um, not as a, I'm not smart enough, I don't, I don't know what this says, <laughs> what does that mean kind of thing, but to give you the tools to figure it out. Um, because the truth is that God's word is not just meant for the preachers and the teachers to explain to us it's for all of us, and it is meant for all of us, and it's for all of our edification so that we can all grow in those things. So the way we're going to do that is these questions are all laid out in a specific format. Um, when you were growing up in your English classes, um, we're doing this a lot right now with Micah's third grade stuff, reading literacy and comprehension you know, she reads passage, she has to answer the questions about it because it's testing to make sure that she actually understood what she read. And the purpose of the homework is to help you in that because we're human. And if you're anything like me, if I just told you next week we're talking about 1 Samuel 1 through 3, you might go home and you might read it once and then that's it. And then by the time we get here, like, has it sunk in? Or if um, sometimes, which I hate to admit this, but it's true, I'll go ahead and be the one who says it out loud. Sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, if I'm not like focused in on some questions that need to be answered, I might read it, but be thinking about my grocery list and everything else I need to do the rest of the day and to get accomplished. But I get to the end of it, I'm like, okay, I read it. I'm going to check off that box on my daily reading schedule and I'm going to move on. Okay. So it's to hold us accountable to what we are studying and where we're going. So we're going to move through the steps of comprehension, interpretation, and application. All this is kind of laid out for you on page five there. Comprehension, when, you, when you're doing comprehension, you're reading for breadth, like for the, you know, the whole general idea, what does this actually say? Because sometimes you have to read it a few times to figure out what, di- what? what did that say? And so it's okay. Sometimes I have to reread a text message two or three times before I figure out because you don't know tone of voice or anything else. It's the same way. We read for understanding. That's comprehension. And then interpretation takes it a step farther and says, okay, this is what it says. Now what does that mean? What does that actually mean for them then? And what does it mean for us now? That is the third step of application that we're going to cover.
Now, I think a lot of times we kind of jump, right? We skip that comprehension and interpretation stage, and we're like, how does this apply to me? What difference does this make in my life? David slayed, slayed, slew, slew, defeated Goliath, (laughs) right? We need to be giant slayers. What are your giants? And so we, we make that leap to immediate application without doing the hard work of comprehension and interpretation first. And sometimes when we do that, we miss the point entirely of what God's Word is trying to say to us. So we're going to do our best not to do those things. Now, if you've done this before, then you know what I'm about to tell you, and you're probably not going to like it. But that means that if you have one of these nice, lovely study Bibles that tell you lots of amazing things in the footnotes and in the appendix, that I don't want you to use it. Because when we rely on these to help us answer the questions in our homework, then you haven't really thought about it very much at all. You've just gone somewhere else to get the answer. And that's really easy to do these days. Have you ever wondered what happened to our brains since Google came along? I mean, used to, if somebody asked a question like, which president... Who was president when in the War of 1812? Like, maybe we would talk about it, and somebody in the room would, I mean, I don't know. Do y'all know anyone? (laughs) Right? Ask Siri, right? But, like, we would live in that tension of not knowing, right? But now we don't like that tension, and so immediately... I mean, we can Google everything. We can find out the answers. And so we don't have to experience the, you know, the unsureness, uncertainty. I'm having trouble with words tonight, y'all. I'm sorry. I promise words are my thing. I should do better than this. We don't like the uncertainty. And so we do, it's uncomfortable, right? If you read something in the Bible and you don't know what that means and you're like, what's up with Saul going to the witch of Endor to ask him, her to like raise Samuel from the dead like what is up with that and so because let's be real that's a very strange story that's in first Samuel and we're like "Mm, not so sure about that wonder what so-and-so says about that and so we we look to them for answers now I'm not saying that commentaries and study Bibles are bad things they're great things they're good tools for us you know but I want you to do the hard work of thinking through those things. And sometimes you're not going to have answers, and that's okay, you know? It is okay not to have the answers. I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the things. And, and to know that it's okay that if we don't have a neat and tidy answer for every single thing. Um, but I will give you this. If after you've done the homework and after you have come to our meetings you still have questions and you're still unsure, then you can check your study Bible or your commentaries um, for those things. There's a list of commentaries that they that are kind of trusted resources there at the bottom of page five. I actually have one of them. That's this one. It's really small for a commentary. Um, this one is, this series is really good because um, it's not so like knit, so very detailed, like, picking apart every single word. It's more general. So this is one of the ones that she lists. Um, it is this is the third one. So if you ever want to look at that, I've got it. Um, but let's wait until afterwards so that um, we can live in that tension ourselves for a little bit. 
One of the greatest things that I learned in seminary was not Hebrew, it wasn't Greek. I mean, a lot of people think that seminary is like Bible study all the time, where you, you go and like you study every single book of the Bible and you know all the things, about, but that's not, that's not what it is. Um, seminary is a lot of reading and a lot of book reviews, like a lot. I, I mean, I think I read like 20-something books every semester, five for, five for each different class. So you could, they wanted you to read the book. They wanted you to be able to pick apart the argument and like explain what they said was good, what they said was bad, why you agreed with it, why you didn't agree with it. And I didn't really realize what was happening during all of that, except I got to read another book. But by the time I was done with that, three to four year process of constant reading and constant picking apart and all of that, I realized that what seminary did was teach me how to think in a way that I hadn't thought before. It taught me how to read critically and to assess everything and measure it by the word. And so that's kind of the same thing that we're doing here is um, we're on a quest to learn how to think and to study critically. So that's the why behind what we're doing, kind of the purpose of why we're here and why this method over other methods. And so now we're going to turn to the background of 1 Samuel itself. Now, do any of you like to read? Any of you readers, book readers? Yes. Have any of you ever read anything from this series, Harry Potter? Yes. Okay. So I picked this one because, well, Micah just finished reading this one a couple weeks ago. This is the fifth Fifth? Yes, this is book five, fifth book in the series. Um, so she just finished reading it. I picked it because it's part of a large series. I mean, there's seven books. It takes a while to read them. Every, like the first one's only this big, but you can see they get bigger and bigger as time goes on. So if you had anybody in here never read this, anyone never read any Harry Potter books? Okay. So Rebecca, if I gave you this book and I said, um, read, read this paragraph down here, and you said, you read it, and it says, well, not exactly all the way, said Hagrid. We just had to be careful because Olympia and me, we stick out a bit. And then you closed it, and you were like, well, I've read Harry Potter. I'm good. I've read it. Have you really read Harry Potter? No, like we would never pick up a book, a novel, a series, read a few paragraphs and be like, I got that. You know, but that's what we do with the Bible all the time. We open it up, we read a few verses in some random passage, and we're like, Okay, I got that. I know what Romans is all about. I'm good. And so we would not do that without the context. Now this, this is book five. We're like in the middle of the story. We're so far away from the end, you know, and a lot has happened before we got to this point. And it's the same way in the Bible. Every book is a separate story that's part of a bigger story of something that led us to that point. When it comes to 1 Samuel then, um, the context that we're in matters. So if you're going to go back to your own Bible drill days, does anyone know what type of book 1 Samuel is? Come on, Rebecca. I think you taught this to my kids. <laughs> it's a history book. It's a, Okay. It's a history book. So we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books are called the... the there you go. Leah wanted to say it. Kind of the Pentateuch. Yes. Sometimes they're called the Pentateuch because it's the... Yeah, it, you are also correct. Because um, there's five of them. The Torah, the book of the law. Those are the first five books. So let's do like a little kind of 
background, let's kind of walk through those things to get us up to speed to where we are when we land in 1 Samuel. So Genesis, story of creation, God creates heavens and earth, Adam and Eve, things kind of go haywire, Cain and Abel, there's Noah in the ark, God recreates, well he decreates first I guess, right? Like he destroys everything, the flood, Noah and the ark. By the time you get to the end of Genesis, God has called Abram out from all the other people who, I guess, descended from Noah. Because Noah ends in chapter 11 and then Abraham is in chapter 12. God calls Abram and he tells him he's going to make a family and a nation out of him. And so Abraham, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them is Joseph, whose story takes up a lot of the end of Genesis. And it's because of Joseph that the Israelites land in Egypt, which is where we are at the beginning of Exodus. Um, So in Exodus, they have multiplied. There's a lot of them. And Pharaoh's not okay with that. So, you know, there's the plagues. God raises up Moses to rescue and redeem his people to lead them out of that slavery and into the promised land. Moses does so. It's, it's a crazy process to get there, but he gets them out. Um, they cross the Red Sea. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. There's some grumbling. There's some unfaithfulness in there along those times. Even Moses isn't immune to it because by the time we get to the end of Deuteronomy, Moses isn't allowed to go into the promised land because of his own sin and the things that are in his heart. And so um, so that's kind of what's going on. So that's Genesis and Exodus. When we get to Leviticus and Numbers... Those are fun books, right? No? Y'all don't love... I mean, we could do a study on those. Okay, so those are your books of law. I mean, it's like books about sacrifices, and if this happens, then this happens, and you need a pigeon 10 days old. I mean, I don't know. All the things for all the sacrifices and all that. And um, that is what's going on in those books. But then, after you get past that... And Deuteronomy, which is more law. When you get past those first five books, and you get to Joshua, where we've already been told that Moses isn't allowed to go into the promised land. And because Moses isn't allowed to lead them in, Joshua, God raises up Joshua to lead them in. So who's read Joshua? What happens in Joshua? The conquest, right? So we've gone through the creation. We've gone through like Israel's begin the period of the patriarchs with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's the patriarchs of Israel. We've gone through all that. God has made a covenant with the people. He has declared Himself to be their God. That He has made law, so there's to live by. And then now we're on the edge of part of that covenant coming into reality. That's the land, right? So Joshua, God raises up Joshua to lead them into the land. And there were some rules regarding the going into the land. One of them was that they were—they basically were supposed to kill everything that breathes. Nothing was supposed, it was supposed to be total annihilation. They were supposed to take over the whole land. Did that happen? Not so much. So Joshua is a story of partial obedience and partial success. So by the time you get to the end of Joshua, they're in the land kind of. You know, they've got part of it, but not all of it. The land is still full of Canaanites. It's not a total, you know, promised land by any means. Um, So it's not exactly how they thought it was going to go. But then after Joshua, we get to Judges. And who's read Judges? How fun is Judges? It's great. I mean, it's a happy story. 
One of your favorites to turn to. Judges is awful. Like, it is bad. The people of Israel find themselves in this terrible situation without good leadership. They don't know God. If you read the first couple of chapters of it, it basically says, you know, a few generations later, they forgot. They did not know God, and the world was chaos. Right. It's like the it's like the roller coaster ride that never ends. And so what happens is they sink down to a new low and God raises up a judge to save them and deliver them. It's like a temporary rescue from the situation that they're in. So he raises up a judge, the judge does whatever that particular one has been called to do. These are like Gideon. Um, Samson is the most famous judge, which by the way, Samson's story, even though like he technically one, in the end, I would not like to win in the way that Samson won. Like, not a good story. Not with the temple falling down on you and all those things. And so he, the judge rescues and redeems, and everything's good for a little while, and then they plummet again. And it's over and over and over again. And what it says in Judges more than once is that there was no king in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so it's setting us up for where we land when we get to 1 Samuel, for there is still no king in Israel, and the people are still doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, tucked in between Judges and 1 Samuel is another book. What book is that? Ruth. And Ruth is like this little glimmer of hope that we're given in between the two bad newses, um, because her story is one of redemption, and her story is one that points to someone who's willing to give up everything for the sake of someone else. Um, her story is kind of a Messiah story in a way, and it's pointing to even though things are really bad, it's not all bad, and there's something else going on there. And that's where we land when we get to First Samuel. <clears throat> things are bad. Things are real bad. Um, everything is bad. And you can tell that it's bad because in the first chapter when Hannah... We know Hannah's story, right? Part of it is because we're familiar with these stories that we think we know them. Hannah, who is barren and can't have a child, her husband has another wife who has lots of kids and is just constantly down on Hannah. And Hannah is grieved and she's distressed and she is upset and she goes to the temple to pray. She turns to the Lord in her distress and the priest is like, are you drunk? That should be an indication that something is wrong in Israel. If the priest cannot recognize um, a heart being poured out before the Lord, that's the state they're in. It is just utter chaos. Things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Everything is out of control. If you keep reading, which we're going to, in chapter 2, you see how bad Eli, the priest's sons, are. They are terrible. I mean, everything is awful. And yet, in the middle of that... Um, that's exactly where we enter in. And so you know when you get there that, that something's about to happen because really it can't get much worse than it already is. Something is about to happen. And so that's where we are. That's the background. Okay? If we go to page 9 on our questions about the background that we typically cover when we get to the story of the books. The very first question, I don't think you're going to like me very much when we get to these answers because, well, Dennis came into the office earlier while I was kind of going back over everything again. He said, well, what are you going to teach? I'm like, well, let me tell you the answers to these five questions. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And I've got answers for the last two. 
How about that? Um, so that is the short answer. We don't know who wrote the book of First Samuel. Okay. Now there are some theories. I'm not saying there's not some really super smart people out there who have some ideas. They have some ideas, but the Bible itself doesn't tell us. Church history doesn't give us any clues, really. There's no tradition saying that, say, Samuel wrote it because, spoiler alert, Samuel dies, like, pretty early on. So it, it couldn't have been Samuel. <laughs> couldn't have been him. Most likely the book is named after Samuel because he is the primary character. He's the kingmaker in the book. And also, just so you know, there's not really technically a book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are all one book. They are all one story, one very, very, very long story. Now, I was listening to Jen Wilkins teaching over this same material yesterday, and I thought it was really funny the way she said it. She's like, do you know why they divided it like that? Like why they picked where they did? Well, they got to the end of the scroll, and then they continued writing. <laughs> You know, that's literally the reason why there are two Samuels instead of just one, because it was too long to contain on one scroll. And so now the ending was obviously chosen with care because it kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger. You're not sure what's going to happen when you get to that point. But it is kind of the middle of the story. We don't we don't end in really a good place. So we don't really know exactly who wrote the story, but whoever it was, whether it was one author or, you know, an editor who kind of pulled in history stories from lots of different sources and compiled them into one story, regardless of who it was, um, they were working with an agenda in mind because the whole entire story is pointing to something. It is, it is telling us a story. And you know what? It's okay if we don't know who that person was, person, persons. It's okay because it's not necessary for us to know who they were in order for us to know that they were inspired by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and um, just led to put it all together in the form that we have it today. So we don't know exactly who it was, but that's okay. They had a purpose and an intention in mind when they did it for their audience. Now, we don't know specifically who the audience was, but we do know that it was the people of Israel. Um, It's their history. It's their story. And it's an important part of their history and an important part of their story because this part of the Old Testament is marking a big change from a time before there was a king to a time when there is a king. And that's kind of a big deal. You know, think about how much we know about American history and George Washington and the American Revolution and he's the first president and like what a big deal it is in our own education growing up. It's the same kind of way. It was written for the people of Israel to give them a sense of their history and where they came from, why things are the way they are, and how they ended up in this place. It was also written for us eventually. You know, not just for them then, but for us now. Sometimes the Old Testament, we brush it off as not as theologically rich or, you know, it's just a bunch of stories, right? Um, We turn to Romans if we want some real deep theology or somewhere like that in the New Testament. But we have to remember that all of the New Testament 
is informed by the Old Testament. And if you want to be a good student of the New Testament, you got to know your Old Testament. Like, you will see, when you start studying the Old Testament, you start reading through and learning the themes, and you see what God is doing in the Old Testament, you will read the New Testament with fresh eyes. You will see the word pictures that they are writing so very clearly. Like when we did our study on John, and he talks about, you know, Moses lifting up his staff in the wilderness, and we're like, what in the world is he talking about then? You know, well, if we were good students of the Old Testament, we wouldn't have to stop and look back at that story to know. We would know what he was getting at right then. And so there is value in it, for sure. So that's where we are. When was it written? Well, not sure. That goes back to the we don't know who wrote it. But there are some clues that we have from the text. One of them is that the um, Assyrian invasion is not mentioned. That's kind of a big deal. That happens in 722 B.C. So, um, you know, I led you up to the point where we're about to get a king. God raises up Samuel. Samuel anoints Saul. Samuel anoints David. Those are the first kings. And then, so now we have a king in Israel. But then after David's kingship, what happens? Solomon, his son, reigns for a while. But what happens after Solomon? Yeah. Downhill. Yeah, it's not good. Civil war. They split into two different nations. No longer is Israel one nation, but you have the divided kingdom period where you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Okay? And it's during the divided kingdom period that Assyria invades the northern kingdom. Oh, there's two invasions. Babylon is later. Assyria comes first, I think. And it's during that period that um, they invade. It's kind of a big deal. And if that had already happened, it probably would have been mentioned here. So we're assuming that it's prior to the Assyrian invasion in 971. Did I say 971? I may have said given the wrong number earlier. 971. And then it's also after David's death because that is also mentioned in the book. So that happens in... Oh, wait. No, I did... I'm sorry. I, I'm... Sorry, if you're a perfectionist like me, I'm going to make you like cross out your pen more than once. The Assyrian invasion happened in 722 B.C. and David died in 971 B.C. This is me not being able to read my own notes <laughs> that I'm telling you. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Okay, sorry if I have messed up your neat note-taking. Okay, so sometime, I know, Leah, I see that look. I see it. <laughs> Sometime between 971 B.C. and 722 B.C. and that span of oh, 150 years-ish. Is that right? I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere between 971 B.C. and 722. Okay. Between David's death and the Assyrian invasion. And because of that, um, that kind of span, I mean, the book itself only covers about 110 years, so it's not like a huge, like, comprehensive history book. Um, but then it picks up in First Kings and Second Kings, you know, we move on from there, okay? In what style was it written? It was written, it's a historical narrative, okay? So... That means that it's 
it's not straight history. It's history with commentary, basically. So it's not historical fiction, okay? It is actual history. The people and the events, everything described in it are real. They really did happen. We know this because people in the New Testament talk about them as if the people are real. They talk about David like he was a real, actual king. You know, so it's not made up. It's a real time in Israel's history. But the way that the story is told is edited in a way. Think, just think about your own life. If you are telling someone about something that happened to you, do you tell them every single detail? Well... Micah probably would if she was telling me something and I'm like could you please like get to the point tell me what you want to say okay so when you tell a story in general you edit it based on the conclusion that you're getting to right you don't tell all the things you tell the important parts of your story when I told you earlier about growing up I didn't know where I was from you know I gave you the highlights because that's all we were covering right then. So it's the same way with this. Some details are included and some are left out based on the message that they are trying to convey. The message that the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this author was trying to tell us about who God is and how he acts in history and what that means for us. All of that is happening to, to bring us to this place um, of understanding about who God is. So it's historical narrative. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times when we read um, history in the Old Testament, we tend to turn them into moral lessons. Like, Abraham had faith and took Isaac to the top of the mountain. You should have faith, you know. And that's not necessarily wrong, but that's not everything. Or... You know, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. Don't kill your brother. Don't kill your brother, yes. But um, is that all that the text is trying to tell us? You know, or is there something else going on in those passages? And so there are moral lessons to be learned from the historical narrative. But more importantly, about we learn about the people and what they did and what was good and bad and all that is what it's telling us about God and who he is and how he acted. What is God doing in David and Goliath's story? What's, what's going on behind the scenes, you know, when Hannah is praying in the temple? What is God doing there? And so the problem with turning all of the Old Testament into a moral lesson for us is that we forget that the primary character in the Bible is not the people, it's God. He's the hero of the story. He's the one we need to be looking for. And so every time you read something here, you need to say, what is God doing here? What is God doing? And, and because he's that, what does that mean for me? Not because... You know, David messed up with Bathsheba. <laughs> what does that mean for me? But because God was gracious to David, what does that mean for me? And so you see the difference? There's, it's, it's subtle, but it's there. Too often we turn them into moralistic stories. And the other tendency is to turn them into these um, allegories. You know what an allegory is? 
right? Like it's a word picture. So, you know, when Samuel goes to David's house because God has led him there and he, you know, casts aside all the other brothers and David is out with the sheep, you know, he's, he's being a good shepherd. There's another good shepherd. He's with the sheep, you know, and so we just need to be careful when we read it not to do things like that, but to take it for what it is. There's a story that's trying to tell us something about God and who we are, who God is and who we are, but who we are in light of what God has done and who he is and has revealed himself to be. So last question, the central themes of the book. Um, It doesn't take long to start reading it to see that this is a story about reversals. It's kind of turning the world upside down, the world as they know it, and recreating it, turning it into something different, something new. God's doing something here that he hasn't done in Israel before. And because of that, I mean, you see it right away with Hannah in chapter 1 and and her song. I mean, her song reads like a preface to the entire book um, where God is opposing the proud and exalting the humble. There you see the contrast between the strong and the weak, you know, not just with David and Goliath, but with Saul and David. Um, You see the tension, I guess, between the sovereignty of God and human ambition, what people think they want, what we think we need, as opposed to what God knows that we need. And so there's, there's a lot of that going on. Um, external appearance and internal character. You know, what's that famous verse? God, man looks at what's on the outside, but God looks on the heart. That's here, verse Samuel. So there's all of that between order and chaos. Remember, things are in bad shape at the beginning of the book. And so there's this move from that chaos into God bringing order to a really bad situation. Now, is it perfect by the time we get done? No. It's still not perfect, but it's a movement toward better, better than it was. Um, You see, also the sovereignty of God is just all over 1 Samuel because people have plans, people have ambitions, people know what they want to do, who they think they know who should be king, but in all of it, you see God at work despite it. You see God raising up Samuel in a time when there was no knowledge of the word of God. There was nothing really. I mean, there was still a temple and sacrifices apparently since Hannah went there, but it wasn't, it wasn't right. Things weren't right. So you, you see God raising up Samuel. You see um, there's a portion that we'll get to in the third week, I think. Not this week's homework, but the next week's where it's all about the Ark of the Covenant, which is so crazy because Eli's sons get this grand idea to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines. They think that the presence of the Ark is going to, you know, make them win, like it's some lucky token or something. And what ends up happening is that the Ark gets captured and it's taken off to Philistia. Yeah. And um, the whole time it's there, y'all, like God, like it gives me chill bumps to think about it. He does not need us because he acts on his own. 
and like he's he's causing all kinds of chaos the whole time he's there um just by the ark's presence in their country and do you know how the ark makes its way back to it's it's in the back of like a cow cart like that they put it on the cart and send the cows out and they're like go back to israel and it does all by itself. No one is driving the cart except the Lord. And so it's just, it's just this great picture of God will do what he wills, even if that means directing a cow to take the ark back to Israel. He is in control of everything. Israel thought everything was lost because they lost the ark, but God is still in control. And so you see his sovereignty played out just kind of on this grand stage. Um, you see the introduction of this idea of a Messiah. That's what um, literally the Messiah means translated as the anointed one. And so God's anointed, you see that with David being God's anointed king. And eventually, you know, the Messiah comes to mean so much more than just anointing, but, you know, a rescuer, a redeemer, one who has been raised up to save. And so you see all of that coming out. And then um, you see the beginnings of it in 1 Samuel, but not it, it really comes to fullness in 2 Samuel, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with David. Um, and that covenant basically says that there will always be an heir of David's on the throne in Israel. And it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And so you see the beginning of that promise here now. Now it's a long way till Jesus comes. But that plan was set in motion way back here in 1 Samuel. So that's where we are. Um, Next week, we will talk about the first three chapters. Your homework starts on page 10. You'll read through those things, answer the questions. I would suggest doing it in portions um, to take. If you look, like there's usually, well, the first thing it asks you to do is to read the whole thing and then summarize um, what happens in this chapter, what happens in that chapter. But then if you look like on page 12, there's a little arrow that says explore and it takes it like piece by piece. Now read this. I would, I would take those separate sections. Like don't try to tackle the whole thing at one time. It will overwhelm you and you'll think you can't do it. Um, so like work your way from that explore all the way down to like the apply on page 14 and then maybe do the next one, starting on page 15, the next, the next day or something like that. Just work your way slowly through it. I'm not sure how many different sections there are in each week's homework. But you have the flexibility. I mean, if you want to do it all at one time, you do you. I mean, that's fine if that's the way you want to play it. Um, I'm not sure that I could do that. But you go right ahead if that's, if that's how you feel. So, does anybody have any questions? Y'all, I'm excited. I know that it takes a little bit of work sometimes and sacrifice to get here. I know that it's not easy. Um, We're all busy. You have other places that you could be, other things that you could be doing. Um, But y'all, it's worth it. It's so worth it. I know because I have been putting off doing another study for quite a while. I was telling Dewana when she came in, you know, when I finished, huh? It was, yeah, it was. It was in 2017. So it was the spring of 2017. 
It's been about a year and a half. We did Ephesians, Ephesians the year before that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've had to work myself up to doing another one. <laughs> Emily has asked me multiple times. And I'm like, maybe in a couple months we'll get started again. I know. I'm like, unrelated, but. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I know the struggle. I, I know that it's hard. And, um, but, but I'm here, and I think God is faithful to us, and I'm excited. I'm excited to get into his word. And just know that I'm learning right alongside you, because I'm not a first Samuel expert at all, by any means. And so, um, just know that I'll be studying, I'll be reading the commentaries <laughs> that you're not allowed to. Um, but do you know this, too? I, I do believe that the Lord is working in this and has brought us to this place, because, um, Way back in January, my friend Meredith, one of my seminary friends who lives in Nashville, invited me to this conference slash workshop at her church, um, and it was about teaching for Samuel. And I was like, I mean, I don't know. And she's like, no, it's really good, because she had been the previous year, and I was like, I mean, I guess I'll go. And my parents live in Nashville. There's no reason really for me. Like, I, I don't have a reason, a real good reason to say I'm not going to go. So I went. And I was really encouraged um, by the workshop and just thought, like, man, I've never looked at First Samuel that hard before. Like, I had no idea it was such a deep and amazing and beautiful picture of the Lord. Like, I had no idea. Like, I thought it was just about David, <laughs> you know, how David got to be king. And um, so ever since then, since I came back, I was like, yeah, I really would like to teach First Samuel. But then it became a matter of a workbook and not having the time to write one because I, I really do believe in the method of, you know, the studying and the working it out and the wrestling with the text and, you know, doing all of that. Um, but the ones we've done in the past, like I have written those workbooks and it takes a lot of time. And I just have not, like it has been, it has been a year, y'all. Like there's just been a lot going on and personally and then professionally just a lot and so I hadn't had time but then when the village church in Texas announced their fall schedule and that they were studying first Samuel and that their workbook was going to be available for free to download I thought I think that's an answer (laughs) right there Um, because and I've told some of you this but because the workbooks that I wrote were modeled on these the the workbook style I mean like that wasn't me that was that was this that was me looking at Jen Wilkin who um, teaches Bible studies there looking at some of hers and saying okay like how can I take this to our church how can I bring this and so this this is that and I'm just so grateful to be here and for y'all to be here and I'm excited to see what the Lord's going to do all right anybody else have anything anybody ever studied for Samuel before I know. Well, and see, I teach sometimes the substitute teaching on Sunday mornings. And so in the middle of all of this, when Meredith was trying to get me to come to this conference on First Samuel, then Brother Hugh would be like, can you teach in Miss Minadine's class? And I go, and it's David and Goliath. <laughs> and I'm like, really? What's going on here? <laughs> so anyway, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that y'all are here. And I'm looking forward to it. All right, let me pray for us, and then we can head out. Father, we thank you so much um, for your goodness and for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you for 
your sovereignty for um, the mercy that you have shown us, God, and your word, your truth. God, I pray that you will give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear. God, that you would um, send your spirit, Lord, as we study to enlighten us, to help us to understand what it is that you have for us. God, and I pray that you would bind us together through this study of the word, that we would be a people who honor you and glorify you day in and day out, that your word would dwell richly in us, that we would be people of your word who order our lives accordingly, God, and that when people see us, they see you shining through us, God. I pray that um, you would just be pleased with all that we do here, that more than anything, your name would be lifted up and your 